If you missed the New Hampshire primary results from this week, here's a quick audio recap. Thank you, New Hampshire! (laughs) One day, books will tell not just of one election, but of the era that began with you here in New Hampshire. Hello, America. I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat Donald Trump. Reporter Peter Haskell, part of our 880 team covering the presidential race. Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar. They're the winners. Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar either won or exceeded expectations. They did well. Liz Warren, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden did not do well. And both of them seem to be in trouble. So this week on 880 In-Depth, our view of the presidential race in the quick sprint to Super Tuesday, March the 3rd. Peter, we're stacked this week with good content on the presidential race with a special focus on the impact of our former mayor, Mike Bloomberg. So we have our own Steve Burns, who was up in New Hampshire the better part of the past two weeks. He'll give us his personal observations about being up close and personal with the Democratic candidates. Both of us have covered New Hampshire primaries in the past. That's really a great opportunity to really get. And, you know, once this election goes national, which it's now, you don't get that opportunity like that. So it'll be fun to hear from him. You get into small venues, you get into coffee shops, you see how the candidates interact with voters, and you get to ask them questions as well. But first, my conversation with political consultant David Pluff. You remember David Pluff ran the 2008 Obama campaign and later worked in the Obama White House as a special advisor to the president. David is the host of the podcast Campaign HQ, which I highly recommend. We started our conversation this week about the latest results. David, what's your uh, take on New Hampshire? Well, thanks for having me. Um, You know, I think Bernie Sanders' win, um, you know, I think he could have gone on if he didn't win, but um, I think it would have been a blow, so good for him that he won. You know, didn't really, um, you know, blow it out, obviously, um, and, um, you know, way off his marks from from 16. Now it's a multi-candidate field. So I think, you know, Sanders is the one candidate, I believe, almost certainly, uh, can go deep into the calendar because he's got the money, the name recognition of the organization. Um, and so I think the the real question coming out of New Hampshire is, do Mayor Pete or Amy Klobuchar seize the mantle as kind of the Bernie alternative? Uh, do Biden uh, or Warren have a comeback in them you know, because the clock's ticking for them? And of course, you have Mayor Bloomberg looming out there complicating everything. So Sanders, I think, has earned his way into the March round of the contest. Um, and the question is, others may go into March, but I'm only interested really in who can actually win the nomination. And, you know, we've only got 20 days till Super Tuesday. And, and as you know, people in a lot of the states are already voting um, by mail and, and early. So um, the complication for Klobuchar to leverage her strong showing last night into the sort of national campaign uh, resources you need uh, is, is a steep one. People have done it, but it's a big challenge. I heard you on MSNBC this week talking about the accelerated race with uh, uh, Super Tuesday coming up so quickly. Um, I guess last time around, or when your candidate was in in 2008, Super Tuesday was a bit of a wash there. The delegates really split um, uh, very much between the two top candidates. Can that happen this time and others survive like uh, Mayor Pete and, uh, and Amy Klobuchar? Well, back in 08, you know, splitting, um, I think we netted a few more than Hillary, but that was a huge victory for us because, 
you know, we weren't as well known as she was. Um, we were the underdog. Uh, Super Tuesday then was was basically 10 days after South Carolina, but still close. And so that was a huge relief for us because we knew we had some good states coming up next, some caucuses, Maryland, Virginia. So that's really when we secured the nomination was in those couple of weeks after Super Tuesday. So even though we didn't dominate Super Tuesday, we did what we needed to do. And I think that's always important. Like not everybody's standard is the same here. So, um, you know, the question is, if, if Bernie Sanders were somehow able to leave Super Tuesday with a delegate lead, let's say, of 100 or 120, that may not seem like a lot. But in our proportional system where it's not winner-take-all, it's really hard for somebody to give up their delegate lead, uh, particularly in a multi-candidate field. Because the only way you win, like, massive amounts of delegate in a state uh, is to win by big margin. Uh, and in a big field like this, we see what happened in Iowa New Hampshire, super close. And so I think if you're a Mayor Pete or if you're Amy, even if you're Bloomberg with all his money – like, if you don't put the delegate numbers you need on March 3rd on the field, you can stay in the race, um, but you have no chance to win. And so, you know, this gets really real, real fast. The idea of the standard bearer, the potential standard bearer of the Democratic Party being one who a percentage of the members uh, have deep issues with uh, is problematic for the Democrats at the moment, isn't it? Well, listen, I think it's always, a, you know, important challenge to unify the party. Um, you know, Bill Clinton faced that back in 92. We certainly faced that in that hard-fought race in 08. Hillary Clinton did in 16. You know, I think if we lose this election to Donald Trump, my guess is it won't be at the top of the list will be because we didn't unify. It's a big challenge. It takes a lot of work. But Trump is such a unifying figure. <laughs> uh, and I think all the candidates, even last night, you had Bernie Sanders and Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, I think Amy Klobuchar are all saying uh, any of us is better than Trump. So the folks at the top, I think, are sending the right message. Uh, but, you know, you have to be thoughtful about that. Um, you know, this will end up being a much nastier campaign than it is now. And there's going to be raw feelings. And you've got to, if you're the winner, you better understand people are going to be pretty upset with you uh, and, and approach that carefully uh, and make sure people understand why they're upset with you. <laughs> so you give them the space and time to come back into the fold. The elephant in the room in New Hampshire and beyond is one Michael Bloomberg, who will be on the ballot in a number of Super Tuesday states. Well, first of all, as it relates to Bloomberg, we've never seen anything like this in American politics. So I don't think any of us with any certainty can tell you how it's going to unfold. Someone who skips the first four states yet is spending hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in the rest of the country um, and is really not part of the conversation other than his act. We've never seen that. So, yeah, I think when he takes the debate stage, it will matter. So, first of all, for Bloomberg, does his presence on the stage match the power of his ads? And, you know, if people don't think uh, he did well or didn't look like a president or, you know, was shaky, that's really going to hurt him because then he looks like somebody who's just basically standing behind the money. You know, conversely, if, if he has a very strong performance, um, you know, that'll be additive on top of all the spending they're doing. So I think it's really important. And. You know, I think if Vice President Biden and, you know, maybe he'll have a comeback in him in South Carolina, but but if he doesn't go the distance here or, or doesn't, um, you know, look like he's going to be able to be the nominee, a very important base that he's held a lot of strength with the African-American vote uh, is going to be really um, uh, competitive. And, you know, the question will be, does one candidate then become 
the person where a lot of that vote gravitates to, or does it get split up like the rest of, rest of the electorate? So Bloomberg obviously is running ads aimed at the African-American community. There's polls suggesting he's making some movement. Um, but as you you know know better than most, given his tenure here in New York, you know there's going to be a lot of questions about some of his policies, stop and frisk in particular. But if you live in New York, you know 100% about. And if you follow politics closely, you know. But if you're just the average voter in a Super Tuesday state, Alabama or Arkansas, you may not know. And so I think the question will be uh, who of the other candidates decides to really tangle with Bloomberg on stop and frisk and, and other issues pertaining to race. Those campaign ads that we've seen, I, I feel like I've seen a, um, seven or so new ones just in the past week. But the ones that are, are effective, you know, in my view, and I'm not I'm just an amateur at this. I wondered what what your thinking is. There was one specifically this week that uh, juxtaposed uh, uh, Donald Trump's remarks, uh, flippant remarks uh, against, if you will, against uh, presidential, um, you know, speeches from uh, and and big presidential moments from presidents like Reagan, Kennedy, Johnson, Obama, uh, Bush uh, in big moments. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Americans are generous and strong and decent, not because we believe in ourselves. Like to punch him in the face. But because we hold beliefs beyond ourselves. Grab him by the. If stop and frisk is an Achilles heel to 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 Bloomberg, is this non-presidential uh, idea of Donald Trump the Achilles heel for the president in Mike Bloomberg's view? Well, first of all, Bloomberg is trying to become the nominee, his opponent first, right? So I think the, an ad like that does help him because Democrats, above all else, are desperate to find somebody who can beat Trump. And so Bloomberg looks like someone who, A, has the resources, and B, is willing to take on Trump. So that's good positioning for him. There's no question about that. I think we're, we'll probably continue to see that. I'm the guy that can take this fight to Trump all across the country. I wouldn't be surprised if his advertisements get even tougher on Trump because I think that benefits him. Um, so if he were to run against Trump, you know, we know a lot of the resources, which is not unimportant. Uh, and I think, you know, he and his team have the moxie to go after Trump. Um, but, you know, that's one part of the campaign. The other part of the campaign is just, you know, Trump's, um, you know, daily use of social media and driving the conversation. And, you know, maybe being from New York, uh, which is a heated media capital, gives you some advantage there. We'll see. But that's the thing I think whoever our nominee has to figure out is, OK, you've got debates. If Trump you know, decides to debate, you've got your convention, you've got your ads. All that stuff I think you can hopefully execute on at a high level. But then there's just the day-to-day prosecution of the campaign with him, you know, doing his crazy stuff. And, you know, no one's really been able to figure that out yet. So you're looking forward to March the 4th, or at least the evening of March the 3rd, to see a little bit more definition in this race, I would assume? Yeah, I think we will know a lot more, um, you know, the morning of March 4th uh, from a delegate standpoint. Um, Has somebody gone out to a lead? Uh, And then what are the odds that that person could lose the lead? Are we looking at someone who's likely to end the process as the delegate leader? And if they are, I think that person's nominee. Is it completely split two, three, four ways? Um, and then, you know, we obviously have some really important states. Um, you know, March 10th, you've got uh, Missouri and some other key states. March 17th is a huge day. You've got Ohio, uh, Illinois, Florida, uh, and Arizona. Uh, and then, of course, you know, for Bloomberg, probably his best day, if he's still alive, is, is in April when you've got, you know, a lot of the Acela Corridor states, uh, New York, um, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware. Uh, and then, of course, you've got New Jersey in June. So the question really will be, uh, does somebody get out to a lead? Hillary Clinton in 16, 
Barack Obama in 2008, got out to a delegate lead. Uh, and, you know, they could still lose states going forward, which we did. But, you know, the way our proportional system works, um, you know, you could lose a state and get the same amount of delegates or lose a state and, and just, you know, basically lose one or two net. So that's what I'll be looking for is the delegate picture the morning of March the 4th. Um, and, you know, is it really jumbled up? Uh, which, you know, in that case, I think conversations about this being uh, a contested or brokered convention get more serious. Or does somebody open up a lead, uh, even if it's a small lead, uh, that suggests that they'll probably build on that in March and become the person who, you know, if they're not the majority leader of delegates, uh, is clearly on their way to be plurality. So, yeah, just because, so you know, I think a little more than a quarter of the delegates in the country, um, uh, you know, are um, allocated on March 3rd. So we're going to know a lot about this race then. David, thank you uh, for your time. Appreciate it. And yeah, uh, Campaign yeah. HQ is uh, highly recommended in, in my house, by the way. I'm married to a blue hen, so uh, I, we enjoyed this. Oh, the, there we go. We enjoyed the story of uh, of uh, you and Steve having a beer at uh, the Deer Park, the right? The Deer Park Tavern, yeah, yeah. Peter David Ploff and Steve Schmidt, who you know helped run the McCain campaign back in 2008, both attended the University of Delaware. You heard this story, too, on the Campaign HQ podcast. It was pretty funny, right? The two of them, rivals, in that really hard-fought campaign in 08, got together on the stage at the University of Delaware. That's the Blue Hen reference. Blue Hens are the mascot of the University of Delaware. These guys, rivals, became pretty good friends, and they realized that neither one of them actually held a degree, right? They were just a couple of classes short, and they found out together. They went to the same school, and they just needed a little bit to get their degree. And the, apparently the president of the university pushed both of them to get their degree. These celebrated political consultants didn't even have uh, degrees from uh, from their universities, and they now have them. They're now good friends, and the reference to the Deer Park is that bar. If you know anything about University of Delaware, and I do because I'm married to a graduate there, the Deer Park is a very famous bar in the community of Newark, Delaware. Joe Biden uh, is a frequent uh, visitor there. And there was another presidential uh, candidate and a presidential personality who has gone there uh, on multiple occasions. And his name is Chris Christie, a graduate of the University of Delaware. So it must be uh, something in the water there or the beer. actually, <laughs> Probably the beer. Peter, kudos to Steve Burns, who was on the ground for us in New Hampshire these past two weeks. Uh, we wanted to hear from him about his thoughts post election night. And here he is. Steve, you bringing any uh, souvenirs back from New Hampshire? <laughs> Just a, a long expense report for you. Oh, thank you. Really, <laughs> really looking forward to going through that. I did see you had a bunch of uh, press passes for uh, from a variety of uh, of candidate events that you went to. It really is a, a, a cool thing to cover for someone interested in politics because you do get such close access to these candidates in those early states, right? Yeah, this this is something that's unique to New Hampshire, to Iowa, those early states that get to have that up-close-and-personal experience uh, with these candidates. Uh, obviously, they have an outsized influence on the process here, and the campaigns really start you know, a year or even more in advance. And all these candidates come in and pack churches, pack theaters, uh, any kind of local gathering place that they can get their hands on. They want to reach out and, and shake the hands of as many voters as possible, take their questions, 
uh, it's really kind of a, a personal politics. The old school retail politics is still king here in New Hampshire. A couple of things that I always loved about New Hampshire, and I saw it consistently uh, come back this time around. You did a story earlier, uh, I guess last week, on um, political tourism, where people from outside of New Hampshire actually came in uh, with friends to sit in on some of these candidate events because you can't do it anywhere else. Yeah, this is really the only place where you can get uh, see maybe four or five candidates in a single day within maybe a half hour of each other. The other great thing about New Hampshire is that most of the population is down here in the southern part of the state. You have Manchester, you have Nashua, you have Keene, and that's where most of the candidates spend their time because that's where you can get the most bang for your buck in terms of population. Uh, so, yeah, I did meet several people who came from out of state. They're vetting candidates for when their time comes in the primary. Is, it, is there such a thing as... Um, political tourism in that somebody like sets this up or is this just these junkies on their own doing it? <laughs> I think it's just the junkies on their own. I mean, I got it, a good business. Maybe a business. It's a good business. Yeah, model. that's a good business model. Four you could definitely now, set something up. I got, oh, yeah. a, I got a small business. So let's get Joe Connolly on the line. We'll do a small <laughs> business uh, four years from now and, and get tickets and bus rides and things like that. Yeah, uh, get that off the ground. <laughs> the other thing that I always like that I see is uh, schools. I see a lot of colleges uh, bring in students to learn about the political process, not just uh, on the news coverage side, but also on the campaign side. Did you did you experience that? A lot of young people. Oh yeah, this is an enormous kind of learning experience for people, and it's not it's you know for our side, the journalism side, and how to cover these things. Also from the political side, in terms of organizing and and doing the ground game, knocking on doors, phone banking. Uh, there are people that want to get into that kind of a career, and this is where you start, basically. You you have uh, these, I mean, on TV they show maybe like the Bernie Sanders rally last night was in this huge basketball arena, but the real work happens in these like tiny roadside shacks that that are, you know, just one floor and, and just a tiny room where people get together at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and uh, map out their strategy of which doors they want to knock on, which phone numbers they want to call, and that's that's you know where the real dirt work is, and that's what's been going on on the ground here for for so long. Steve, give me uh, your impression of uh, some of the candidates that you got to see at some of the events. I know some of you reporting about the vice president uh, suggested that uh, there was a um, you know no no um, disrespect to him, but a, but a lack of energy either in the crowd or among the volunteers, or sometimes even in the candidate's presentation. Yeah, and he was one of the candidates I was really most curious about. I think we knew coming in that he was going to have a tough time here, just like he had in Iowa. Uh, but what kind of made it a story for me is that this is the former vice president. Just from that title alone, you would think that he should have a kind of a front-runner status here. But for a lot of voters here, he kind of just became an afterthought after a little while, uh, with most of the attention turning to folks like Pete Buttigieg and, and Amy Klobuchar. Uh Biden initially went to the first event. He was one of the few candidates that did not take any questions, either from the crowd or from reporters. I went to another one uh, about a week later where he did take questions from the crowd. And to be frank with you, I mean, it was they were long answers. They were rambling answers, often going uh, far off topic from what the question was. You, you kind of started to understand why they didn't often have him take questions. And it lasted for about two hours. And, and uh, he kept saying over and over again, this is the last question or else my staff is going to get mad at me. And then he would take five more questions. Uh, it's It was kind of a, you know, not exactly what you would want to see from uh, a candidate who should have that kind of front-runner status just based on his name. And, and so many people I talked to said, yeah, we were initially with Joe Biden, 
but after seeing a Pete Buttigieg or an Amy Klobuchar, uh, they initially they pretty much came around to those candidates as you know more energetic. So, talk talk about Pete Buttigieg. Um, this is a uh, in his own world an agent of change. The candidate that that many people feel like uh, is attractive and. The biggest knock against him is it may not be his time, according to some folks, but maybe it is. I mean, he really he really gets a lot of energy wherever he shows up, right? Yeah, that liability. I mean, that that experience could either be a liability or an advantage for him. I mean, uh, if you look at him and Bernie Sanders, and and the fact that those are the two candidates that are doing so well right off the bat here, that tells you that it's just the establishment is not what people are looking for right now. Uh, of course, you, Bernie Sanders is on one end of that anti-establishment argument, and Pete Buttigieg is, is kind of the more moderate side of it. But given his experience as, as uh, the highest office he's held as mayor of a small city in Indiana, uh, people looking to him as as kind of the person to come in, ride in, and save the day, kind of tells you that you know they've they've had it with Washington. They're fed up with Washington. Uh, his events definitely had more energy. He always took questions from the crowd. Uh, gave concise answers. His his events wrapped up, you know, it was pretty tight 45 minutes. I went to one at a middle school in suburban Manchester down in Londonderry. And uh, this was, I believe, about three days out from the primary. Uh, a lot of the people there were trying to decide between Sanders and Buttigieg, which I found interesting. I mean, we always talk about the moderate lane versus the progressive lane, but people there don't really subscribe to that. It's It's more... Uh, I found the head versus the heart. There are a lot of people who uh, put aside their own personal preferences and their own policy goals in search of a candidate that they think is the most unifying candidate, the person who's best equipped to take on President Trump on a debate stage or in the general election. And for a lot of people, that meant Pete Buttigieg, and especially this past week, that meant a lot more momentum for Amy Klobuchar. Uh, talk talk to me about uh, crowds you saw at uh, Bernie Sanders. Um you know his supporters are very vocal. Uh, there, you know, at the election night uh, celebration, uh, there was mention uh, or a side mention of Buttigieg, uh, and there was booing. Uh, yeah, and and that doesn't. I mean, Sanders talked about unity and we're going to bring the party together no matter who wins. But you know, ten minutes before he came on stage, Pete Buttigieg was on the video board inside this arena, and folks were booing him. Folks were chanting "Wall Street, Pete." Uh, I mean, and Sanders isn't entirely uh, blameless here in that his attacks against Pete Buttigieg have been that he's funded by Wall Street tycoons and CEOs and it it matters where your money comes from. So there's still these clear fissures within the Democratic Party, and it's it's not entirely clear when those will get sewn up, if they ever do get sewn up. So the reporting from New Hampshire, no matter where you tuned in, uh, seemed to indicate there was a consistency in the results last night on the Democratic side, and that was that everybody who went in there to vote for a candidate on the Democratic side uh, did so motivated uh, in part uh, by the desire to have someone beat Donald Trump. Would you agree with that? That was the top priority. I mean, I've, I spoke with dozens of voters over the, the 10 days or so that I've been here. That was the top priority from the vast majority of them was that you know, I'm willing to tamp down my personal preferences in order to find someone who I'm most confident can beat President Trump. Uh, and, you know, you can look at that a million different ways. A, a more moderate voter might look at Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar and say they're able to win over uh, maybe the Obama-Trump voters, people who voted for Obama and then switched to, to Trump in 2016. 
Uh, but then you have the Bernie Sanders crowd who looks at it from uh, the farther left end of things uh, where they believe Sanders is able to turn out the younger voters, turn out the more disaffected voters, and expand the, the base a little bit. The news, I mean, from the numbers that we've seen, uh, Sanders has yet to prove that as a fact, at least in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, I would say he underperformed here, especially in some of the, the Manchester suburbs, some of the, the towns close to the Massachusetts border. Uh, he has not proven yet his hypothesis that he's able to bring out uh, more voters than any other candidate could. So, Steve, you're on assignment up there for WCBS, obviously, and, and you have been working with our friends and partners at CBS News uh, and the radio network. And as part of that, uh, you speak to news hosts from across the country uh, during the course of your reporting the past two weeks. Um, you and I were talking, um, you know, off mic uh, earlier today about how you were getting questions about a candidate that wasn't even on the ballot for uh, New Hampshire. Yeah, and if you voted for Mike Bloomberg, you would have had to have write him in here because he was not on the ballot. He didn't file in time. But it's clear, I mean, his ads are, are being seen across the country. He's done uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in ad buys, and, and for him that's uh, just pocket change, basically. Uh, but it's clear those ads are being seen across the country. I am doing interviews with small and large stations all around the, the country, and uh, almost all of them have asked me, what is the Mike Bloomberg factor here? I think if you're Bernie Sanders, you're Pete Buttigieg, you have an encouraging result so far from Iowa and New Hampshire, but you're definitely going back to your war room and, and asking yourself, how are we going to deal with what's on the horizon here in terms of Mike Bloomberg, the investments he's made in Super Tuesday states, and it's clearly resonating. And, and I think people are uh, some of, are able to overlook the, the kind of narrative that this is a billionaire buying the election uh, they're able to overlook that when, again, the top priority is beating President Trump. They'll they'll take that billionaire buying the election if it means President Trump is out of office. Steve, um, if you uh, bring a souvenir, I know uh, that I, it might help uh, slide some of your expenses to get done a little quicker. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'm only kidding. You know, Peter, I was talking to Steve Burns, and one of the things that he noted to me, you know, he was up there working on the team with CBS News. So he had access to and talked to a number of news hosts from other radio stations around the country. And the thing that he said was a consistent question to him about the campaign so far was Mike Bloomberg. So it's not just us. It's not just we here in New York that are thinking about it. Mike Bloomberg definitely uh, has uh, taken some attention. He has spent nearly $200 million, much of that money spent in ads. They are ubiquitous on TV, on the Internet, and he's run some great spots, and he's getting a lot of attention. And one of the other things he's doing, which Democrats love, he is taking it right to the president. And, and we'll see, as David Pluff talked about, the Achilles heel in terms of his stop-and-frisk positions and his apology. Uh, we know that another Achilles heel is the fact that Bloomberg uh, took a third term. He had to change the charter rules in the city of New York, and we know that that will come up in, in a debate uh, from one of his rivals. There's no question. So the question is, how will Mike Bloomberg stand up? Uh, on a debate stage, because we know how his campaign ads are. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see. And we do think he may be part of uh, one or both of the debates that are coming up in the coming weeks. It looks like he's on the path to qualify for the debate before South Carolina. And it seems like his Democratic rivals are really itching to get a chance to 
to bring it to him and to press him on be it stop and frisk or anything else. Well, you can't spend money against him. He's just got so much money. So the only way to fight that is not have more commercials. It's to get on stage with him and to press your position against him and see see how it plays out. I think it's really going to be very interesting. So thank you, Peter Haskell. This is uh, the 880 In-Depth, which is a weekly podcast produced by the staff of WCBS News Radio 880. Peter Haskell, thank you for your help this week. Uh, Bill Tynan, who does our engineering, thank you. Uh, we recommend you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You can certainly find 880 In-Depth on our webpage under the audio offerings at WCBS880.com. But wherever you get your podcast, just type in 880 In-Depth, subscribe to it, listen every week, share it with your friends. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.